Welcome to the BitBlockBoom podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and the producer of the BitBlockBoom Bitcoin Conference. Now, just for reference, I also produce the four-minute Bitcoin podcast every weekday, and that's available everywhere podcasts are available. Now, every August, I host the BitBlockBoom Bitcoin Conference in Dallas, Texas, with the help of a lot of my friends. And if you have an interest in Bitcoin, you really need to visit bitblockboom.com and take a look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on all around BitBlockBoom. BitBlockBoom is a true Bitcoin conference, and I mean true Bitcoin conference. It's not a crypto conference. It's a Bitcoin conference. Now, in this episode, I'm featuring a session from the 2019 conference by Jimmy Song. Let's take a listen. All right, can everyone hear me? Uh, all right, I think my audio is good. Okay, everyone can hear me? Great, um, yeah, if I, if I see me uh, a little low energy, it is because I am going to be losing this hat at the end of this, uh, this actual presentation and the prospect of losing it is a little bit sad, but you know, like, like all, all things, you know, things must come to an end at some point. So okay, I ordered a new hat this morning. It'll arrive at my house, so don't worry too much about that. All right, anyway, um, I, my, my presentation is titled How Bitcoin Changes Incentives. And I, I wanted to make this presentation uh, because I wanted to think about, uh, you know, how, how things change. And I think in your, in your bulletin, it's something like, how Bitcoin changes our mental model. And they're kind of similar things, but really as I thought more about this topic, uh, it, it occurred to me that you know, a lot of the incentives that we have in the current system, they're, they're very, uh, they're kind of bad. <laughs> they're very sinister. And in, uh, in examining it, uh, I, I came to the conclusion that there's, there's a lot just to think about in terms of the current incentives and how Bitcoin fixes all of it. So anyway, um, I'm, I'm going to go through this in sort of uh, four stages, um, starting sort of at the lowest level. We're going to start at the level of the individual. And, uh, and from there, we're going to go to the level of companies. Like it or not, that happens to be what we're all organized into. You, you know, when you meet someone, you first ask them, you know, where do you work? And not necessarily, you know, what tribe they're from or something like that. Um, then we'll go on to the next level, which is nations, and then finally the world, like the global community and, um, and how, how that's all affected. Anyway, uh, let's, let's get into the individual level and what the current system is like and what the incentives are. Um, a lot of this is going to be kind of familiar to you, but in many ways it's, uh, it's a lot like um, fish and water, right? Like fish don't know that they're swimming in water. And it's only when you know, they're lacking water that they kind of realize it. In, in the same way, a lot of this is sort of very familiar to us, but it, it, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be. So uh, first thing I wanna point out is that there is currently no real easy way to store value. Right, in the current system, uh, you know, it's, it's based on Keynesian economics and for Keynesian economics, it's, it's required that money flow through the system. If there's any place that the money can get parked, it's not flowing through the system. So they, they've made it purposefully difficult to store value anywhere. In fact, about the only, uh, and you know, and the, reason, and the reason why you can't just like keep it in dollars is because 
of the inflation that's going on. And inflation is not CPI, right? The classical definition of inflation is the amount of the supply of something that increases every year. And if you look at the M2 money supply for the US dollar, it, uh, from 1959, um, this is taken straight from the St. Louis Fed, to now it's increased by a multiple of 51, which is an insane number, right? Multiple of 51 over the last 60 years. And if you annualize that, that's something around 6.7%. Now, the other two stores of value, the two stores of value that are kind of available are real estate and stocks. Right? Real estate and stocks. Now, I mean, never mind like the insane transaction costs and the friction that comes along with those two. The fact of the matter is that if you invested in either of those things and you're getting 6.7%, that's considered pretty good. Right? That tells you that we are all really just kind of running to stay in the same place. That's essentially what this whole system is made to do. You're, you're, you have to work hard in order to keep the value that you have. And that's a big insight about the individual level. There's no real good place to store value because of the overlords, the economists, the people that are in power. They want you to keep running to stay in the same place. And, uh, and how a lot of other people react is that, you know, if, if it's that hard to store value, this is what they're gonna do, right? You don't need a store value if you don't if there is no value, right? If you, if you don't have anything of value, well, then you don't need to store it. So they end up spending, they end up consuming, they end up doing whatever um, you know, floats their boat for the moment, and they have very high time preference behavior as a result of the fact that there is no good place to store value. And how does Bitcoin fix this? Well, Bitcoin fixes it because there is now a good store of value. And when you have that, your behavior starts to change especially at the individual level. All right, so another consequence is that um, because there's a very, uh, you know, storing value is very hard, the people that actually have money, well, they, they spend a ton of time trying to store their value instead of creating value. And this is a major detriment to society and civilization in general. Because, uh, I mean, like, if you know any rich people, you know that they spend a lot of time in due diligence. Right? They're, they're trying to look for the right property to invest in. They're trying to look for the right stock to invest in. Which mutual fund should I buy? Which bond should I buy? Which, which thing should I get? This is all time that is spent not creating. And it's not, it's not anything productive because you're, you, I mean, the same research that you end up doing, somebody else is gonna do again because they don't, they don't trust, right? Like you can have like bond rating agencies or whatever, but we know how corrupt those things can get. So essentially what, what, what ends up happening is that all of these people that have all this productive capacity, that, that have all this wealth, instead of creating value, they're, they're, they're striving and running to stay, stay in the same place that they are. That's what ends up happening. And, you know, as a result of all this, we get all kinds of insanity, right? Like, we get insane asset inflation, right? The first three are like a New York taxi cab medallion, a Michael Jordan rookie card, and a Rothko painting. Those things are, you know, have some utility but they have a value far beyond the utility that, they, that, that, um, that, that should be there, right? in part because people want to store value somewhere. 
and you get some insane asset inflation. You have modern art, right? There's a book like the $12 million shark. Some guy stuffed a shark and sold it for $12 million. It, it's insane that that sort of thing is happening. It's because there's no good place to store value. So fine art becomes this thing where, okay, maybe this will happen. And, and the thing about stores of value is that it gives a perception that you are just lucky, right? Because if you, if you store, mo most stores of value are not fungible at all. If, you, if you're looking at like real estate or different stocks or something like that, because of their lack of fungibility, somebody that gets lucky with a particular part of real estate, right? You happen to have owned something in San Francisco like 20 years ago versus somebody in Iowa. I mean, you're, you're going to have made a lot more money as somebody that owned property in San Francisco. That's, that, that just happens to be luck. It's, it's not distributed in any sort of fair way or it, it's more cynically done because of the powers that be. Uh, uh, other stuff that happens is that materialism, uh, you know, grows because, well, I, I don't have a way to store value. Might as well, you know, do something flashy with it. I mean, hand, that, that, is a, that is a Chanel handbag that, where the chain is made out of diamonds. I, I, I still remember like 20 years ago, the most expensive handbag you could get was like a thousand bucks. Now it's like a hundred thousand dollars, right? Something has happened. Uh, similar thing with cars, right? That's a Bulgatti. And you know, it, it used to be like the most expensive car you could get was like $300,000. Now, now it's like well over a million dollars. It's crazy. It, and and that, that's kind of what happens. And finally, that last picture is of a rapper eating a $1,500 donut, right? That's a $1,500 gold leaf covered donut. This is what people do when there's no store of value. They need some flashy way to show off, right? Uh, this is what, in, uh, what, what uh, having no good store of value does to people is that it, it makes them like essentially very shallow, uh, like consuming and showing off and doing things like that. Ultimately, the, the big problem here is that instead of reaching for the stars, right, like trying to create something new, everyone is absolutely more concerned with protecting their downside because there is no good store of value. And this is not just true in the United States, but all over the world, this is a much bigger deal because things can go south so quickly and things can get so bad so quickly that you, you have to find, find places to put money. And you, you see this all the time. You see this uh, with you know, people in China, right? They're buying up property in Vancouver and Toronto and you know, where, wherever they can find it because that's a hard asset. That's not gonna lose value. And, and we saw with the Chinese Yuan, right? Like that, that's degrading in value. So that was actually a very good move to go buy real estate. And this, is, this is what happens when you don't have a good store of value is that really the rich people get richer. That's, that's essentially by, uh, what's been happening. So that's at the individual level. So let's, look, let's take a look at the level above that. And that's, uh, like I said, that's at the level of companies. And that's sort of how we're organized right now. It's, it's not really by tribe anymore or even ethnic group or anything like that. It's by whatever company you happen to be working for. The big thing about companies is that they, there's a Cantillon effect. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically that the first users of the newly printed money get all of the benefits. And that means that Companies that have access to cheap loans get to, get to benefit a lot more at the, at, at, uh, you know, instead of the smaller companies. And that, that's had 
some tremendous, tremendous um, consequences uh, for you know, uh, civilization. So among other things, uh, it means uh, some serious debt-fueled growth. And, uh, and if you're a large company, uh, you have access to loans that are very, very cheap. And if you think about it, the central bank uh, makes a lot more loans available to their member banks. Most of their member banks are, that, that do loans are actually commercial banks. And if you're a commercial bank, you can lend, uh, say you have $200 million to lend. You can either lend $200 million to one company or one, uh, you can make $102 million loans to you know, 100 small companies. Which are you going to do? It's a no-brainer, right? You're going to do the 200 million. In fact, you take a discount, right, and make less money so, just so you don't have all that paperwork and due diligence that you'd have to do. So all of that debt gets pushed to these large companies. And what do they do with that money? Well, if, it, if you're smart and you're, you're a pretty decent company, what, what are you going to do? Well, you could um, undercut your competition. All those small companies, you're just going to undercut them until they go out of business and then raise prices. Or you can um, you know, lobby for government regulation so that it's difficult for them. Or, you know, I mean, barring all of that, you can just go use that money to do a buyout of the companies that are the most innovative. This means that the big companies get even bigger. And the small companies have to basically fight uphill, right? They're, they're, they have to run to stay in the same place, whereas the large companies, they get to you know, get access to all this debt fuel growth. In fact, that sort of mentality has triggered down even to you know, like college students, right? They're, they're, they're doing debt fuel growth in a way. Uh, and that th this is what ends up happening, is that they, they have a lifetime of debt thinking that they can do that same thing. Anyway, all of this uh, results in a winner-take-all company, uh, winner-take-all economy. Where and and like the the people that know this the most are venture capitalists. They know what the deal is. They know that if you get past a certain level of size, that you're going to have a massive advantage over everyone else. So it is growth at all costs. This is, this is where the whole unicorn meme comes from with respect to venture capital, is that they want billion dollar companies. Why? Because you have an advantage at a billion dollars that you do not have in this economy at any smaller level. And it, it, is, a, it, it is an almost a, like unbelievably large advantage that if you can get to that level, you, you are going to stay there for a very long time because there are all sorts of ways in which the state supports you and all sorts of interdependency and fragility that we'll talk about. But th this is very obvious to anyone uh, that's a VC. Right? Like they, they don't fund small companies. So I, well, because they're searching for unicorns. They know that the, this is where the sweet spot in the economy is. And really, uh, the, the big thing to note is that there's an emphasis on size and not on innovation, right? Uh, it's, it's not about uh, creating new things anymore. It's, uh, th this economy, the way this whole system is set up, is to encourage bigger and bigger things. And I love this cartoon. <laughs> Because uh, you know, here, here's a guy you know like that's uh, that's trying to innovate something, and he's like, oh well, you know, I could just whip them harder. That's that's essentially what the innovation in in, uh, in companies ends up being is getting more out of their workers instead of you know actually innovating new products. Uh, the the coordination problem in large companies tends to do that. 
So, uh, so that's companies. We've covered um, you know, the individual level, the company level. Now let's get to the nation level. And this, this is where you know, a lot of the problems that you know, if you're a libertarian, you know about already. But uh, there, first of all, there's a, there's a pretty major moral hazard, right? Like if you, can, if you are the entity that's in charge and could create a budget and you can also print money and you know, like you have a giant moral hazard. You might print money for yourself. You might print money for your cronies. You might print money uh, for stuff that you want and not necessarily what the population wants. And it is a giant moral hazard. And that leads to you know, everything in government being completely disconnected from price, right? Like they don't care how much things cost. So I, I talked recently with a few people um, that, that work with the healthcare website. Do you guys remember this? Uh, you know, how much of a disaster that was? So apparently uh, the government in all its wisdom uh, decided to spend $700 million to pay a contractor to make the website and they had all these requirements. It took them 18 months to do it. And at the end of the 18 months, everyone found out very spectacularly that the website did not work. It couldn't scale past 50 users, which is horrible, right? And, uh, and so uh, what happened was Todd Park, uh, CTO of the United States, he, he flew out to Silicon Valley and um, you know, talked, a couple, talked to a couple of Google engineers and said, you know what, your country needs you, can you come help us out? They came in. They, they fixed a few of the problems and they said, you know what, like, we're gonna have to rebuild this thing. And so they, they hired some of their friends and, uh, and you know, rebuilt the whole thing. It took them nine weeks and $10 million. Nine weeks and $10 million. Why did it take 70 times less money, right? And eight times less time with much, much fewer people to get that done, right? The government does not care about price at all because, and like to some degree, this is true of any government, but because they have the ability to print money, they'll, they'll do whatever they want, essentially. And, and all these bureaucrats don't care about price. They, they care more about like, you know, climbing up the ladder of bureaucracy or something like that. Uh, the, the crazy thing is, though uh, you know, they, they only spent $10 million on it, what, what I found out was that Congress at that time was so embarrassed that they were willing to put in another $200 million if necessary to get that thing done. I, I, doesn't that tell you something about how broken everything is? Anyway, what, uh, some, some of the other things that happen as a result is that uh, the government ends up with a larger purview. And uh, you, you probably know this quote from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, I, and certainly money, the ability to print money is great responsibility, I mean, great power. So that comes with it a great responsibility. And the, the typical thing is, well, the government needs to do something about this. And there's no real good answer to it when you have the money. Because, well, the government needs to pay for my lung cancer. And it's, uh, well, I mean, if you have the moral, uh, if you have the ability to fix that, why, why wouldn't you? I mean, never mind that you've been smoking for 30 years and that, that uh, a lot of that is your fault, right? Like, there, there's no real limit to the government anymore. And that gives them a moral imperative to do something. And of course, because of the bureaucracy, this is what ends up happening. <laughs> yes, we can fix that, except we probably won't because we're pretty incompetent. 
Anyway, uh, the whole system, because of the giant companies that exist and because of the uh, you know, inefficiencies of government, it's, it's currently set up to support a lot of these large companies. If you think about it, uh, the, a large portion of the banking system pumps money into the big companies so that they can grow larger, that they can you know, eliminate competition and so on. E even the education system, right? Like it, it's, it's churning out cogs for big companies instead of, you know, you, you get a degree as an accountant or something, right? Like, and it's a cog that can fit in, you know, many different company machines. That, that's how the whole system is currently designed. And of course, government regulation, they're, they're designed to protect these things. And it's, it's not because they're being evil per se, it's because the entire economy is dependent on these large companies. So if you let any of them fall, then, you know, dominoes start falling and you might have, you know, great suffering and depression. It's a very fragile system. Anyway, we, we've looked at uh, things at the individual level, we looked at the uh, things from the company level, we looked at things uh, from the nation level. Now let's go to sort of the more broad scope global level. And the first thing to recognize in the global level is right now we're under a dollar hegemony. And this is something that not a lot of people know, I, I, I'm sure a lot of you guys in this room know. But we've been under a dollar hegemony since about 1944 with Bretton Woods. And this is, uh, I, I like to tell people that there were two superpowers after World War II. One decided to control their uh, sphere of influence through violence, the other through, um, through markets, kind of. Uh, so Soviet Union obviously, you know, like invaded uh, rebelling countries and uh, put in puppet dictators and so on. I mean, not that the US didn't do some of that either. But, uh, but mainly it was through the dollar hegemony. And it was through uh, forcing other <laughs> central banks to keep dollars in reserve and put, making the dollar uh, the, uh, the, the standard, the um, unit of settlement in international trade. So essentially the unit of account for the entire world became the US dollar. And, and most central banks to this day try to keep their currency within a certain range of the US dollar for trade purposes. And, uh, and of course, after 1971, when uh, Nixon broke uh, the tie with gold and changed to the petrodollar, this has meant a lot of endless war in the Middle East that, uh, that, uh, that, that's sort of still persisting. We're, we're still in Iraq, still in Afghanistan. That, that combined with uh, you know, uh, being completely disconnected from price due to being able to um, you know, print whatever money they want has meant you know, a lot of a lot of devastation in that region. But more than that, there's a, there's a global Cantillon effect. Uh, and we talked about this earlier. The first printers of that money get to get most of its benefits. And we have to be honest here, right? Even though we're in the US, a lot of the prosperity that we have is on the backs of people all over the world. Right? A, a, a lot of the um, inflation that we have goes to those countries via the treasuries that they buy. And then those countries inflate and those poor suckers at the end in the, in the poor countries, they suffer the most. And this is why the poor countries, they, they hyperinflate much faster. And it's, uh, it's, it's a sad situation. Uh, because it's, it's not a level playing field. It, uh, like where you were born matters a significant amount to what you're able to achieve. 
and, and that's, that, that's the whole system, right? It's, it's completely interdependent, it's completely fragile, and there, there's, there's a lot of ways in which a small thing happening could cause a domino effect that crushes the whole thing. But here's the good news. Bitcoin fixes this. <laughs> Bitcoin fixes it all, right? See, Bitcoin changes the incentives for every level. One, at the individual level, now you have a good store of value. That means that you don't have to run to stand still. You can think about new ways to make money, new innovations that you can make that better civilization. And companies won't be you know, just taking advantage of the cheap loans that they get and doing debt-fueled growth. Instead, they have to actually save up to grow, right? And, uh, and nations, you know, they're not going to like, cater their entire system to these large companies. It's going to be much more about uh, much more limited and, not, and budget conscious. And at the global level, you're not going to have this global Cantillon effect. You're not going to have the dollar hegemony. You're going to instead have a much level, more level playing field. And that means that people living everywhere can do something that, uh, that they, can, they can add value to civilization. And this is how Bitcoin changes incentives. Bitcoin fixes all of this stuff. Bitcoin makes it so that we don't have to run to stay in the same place. We're not on a treadmill. See, all of that running is keeping the current system alive. We have to do that in order to circulate money, in order to keep the people in power that are in power and so on. Uh, like that cartoon I showed you earlier, we're essentially moving those large stones <laughs> And, and, and like benefiting the, the people that are in power that get to print the money, that get to do all of these things. The, you know, Nuriel Rabinis of the world. They, they get to benefit off of our backs. And that's what Bitcoin Fix is. Thank you. How are we doing on time, Gary? Okay. We got about 20. 20. Okay. Well, when I practiced it at, uh, in my hotel room, it was 35 minutes, but I guess it was less. Huh? Okay, all right, so let's do some Q&A. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I, as people adopt Bitcoin, I think all of this sort of naturally happens. Exactly what, uh, what ha the steps to get there is really hard to tell. Um, that said, I do think that once it becomes more of a store of value, it naturally then uh, you know, starts inflating uh, all the other stuff because you know, here, here's, and it'll be very clear that Bitcoin's the more superior store value, and then merchants will be just like, hey, I don't, I don't want this shit coin called USD. I, I want Bitcoin instead. And that's when it transitions into method of payment, and then after method of payment, then it becomes more unit of account. 
but I, I mean, that's roughly the path. Um, you know, is that going to cause geopolitical turmoil? Is that going to cause like large companies to go bankrupt in the middle of it? Is that going to you know, cause certain nations to just uh, you know, adopt the Bitcoin standard early? I don't know. Uh, and and, and um, this is the interesting thing is that we know where all the incentives and motivators are, but how people react and how they try to counter or suppress or whatever, um, that's incredibly difficult to predict. And um, I hesitate to uh, put out any of those. Yeah. So at the beginning, you said there was uh, no place to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Brent Woods was actually based on the fact that the dollar was based on gold, not, mm -hmm. not the dollar. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm not trying to argue gold versus Bitcoin, but yeah. if, if Bitcoin becomes a place to go, mm -hmm. why will people go there if they didn't go to gold? Right. So the big thing about gold is that um, it became really centralized. So most of the gold today is in like giant vaults, right? Like very few people have gold coins at their house, although I suspect that in this crowd, there's probably a good number of those. Uh, and, and this is the thing, uh, when, you, when you centralize it, is that you can fractionally reserve lend it. And this is something that gold vaults have done for ages. And that, that means that there's inflation. You can't really trust that you actually have the gold that the bank says you have and so on. Um, centralization was a natural part of the fact that it's a, it's a physical commodity. Um, with Bitcoin, it's a digital commodity. And that means that you don't need to centralize it. Although cert certainly a lot of people do, like, for example, keep it on uh, Coinbase or whatever. Uh, the fact that you can much more easily secure it at home than Bitcoin. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still a very hard problem to secure it at home. But it's, it's a lot easier than something like a you know, $1 million gold bar or something. That, that means that you, um, it, it really is much more decentralized. And that decentralization is the motive for making it more of a store of value than uh, you know, something that could collapse or yeah, I mean, like if you invested all your stock in Enron, like that, that would be horrible. And in, in some ways, like if you have your gold in like uh, the wrong vault that's fractionally reserved lending or something like that, then that, that may be similar to how it would happen to you. So I, I would say that as Bitcoin continues to prove itself over time, more people will be adopting it uh, simply just due to the supply demand. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you want to talk about like, uh, your thoughts on how much of a beneficiary the, the stock market is at large to the current fiat uh, money inflationary policy? Yeah, I, I would say a lot of it. right? Uh, and this has been the case since fiat money arrived. Um, I think the P-E ratios used to be like uh, a P-E ratio of like 6 to 10 was considered insane. Um, now, now it's like, you know, that, that's like on the low range. Um, and that, that's because it's, it's not about the utility of stock anymore. It's more about the, uh, there, there's a much bigger premium because people want to store it there. Um, and that, that, that's kind of a sad situation. Uh, and you know, I, I, one of the things that I think will happen as more people move to Bitcoin is that a lot of these things go closer to their utility value and less towards uh, you know, this inflated value, uh, like real estate, like art or um, you know, stocks or whatever. Um, 
you know, it's ba it'll be more based on like how much income you can get from rent or, you know, what the price to earnings and dividends that you might be able to get and things like that. Um, more fundamental drivers rather than, uh, you know, drivers based on people piling in. Um, so, yeah, I, that, that's, that's what I suspect will happen. Mm -hmm. Based on a speculative, yeah. Interest. Obviously, I mean, a, a value of eleven thousand on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be argued that that's speculative as well. Well, I mean, it's it's because Bitcoin is being used as a store of value. Bitcoin Bitcoin's a better store of value than all of these other things because it's more liquid, it's more fungible, and it's it's essentially kind of fair and takes luck out of the system. If you if you store value in real estate and you had one like. Maybe even a block away, one might be worth a lot more than the other later, just because it's kind of you know, uh, you know, it's like half block closer to the subway station that's that gets built, right? Like, or it's it it's so not fung uh, store value that's not fungible has a lot of problems, and uh, and it's not very fair, and it, it makes it it makes you have to spend way more time on the investment itself, like I said. And that, that, that's a lot of energy that's being taken away from creating value instead, uh, you know, running to stand, uh, stay in the same place. Yeah. And you see very few companies, or Bitcoin companies, that have become a big success from a sort of a company perspective. Mm -hmm. you know, but you see a lot of individual people uh, that have become very, um, uh, essentially, very humane, very great people, thanks to the empowerment of Mm. Um, I see a lot more successful Bitcoiners as humans than a lot of successful Bitcoin companies. Mm. And do you think that's something that we're going to keep going? Or might we get to a stage where, like, for example, the US government says, well, we can have Bitcoin, but only with banks or custodians and whatnot and not with individuals? How do you see that? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, people are going to have to learn personal responsibility, right? Um, holding a lot of Bitcoin yourself is is uh, like really scary, and uh, and you know, screwing up or something, and uh, the prospect of losing a, a significant part of your wealth is is not not easy to handle. And and we we're used to outsourcing that sort of thing, um, but. The great thing is, once you learn some personal responsibility, it turns out it carries over to lots of other parts of your life, which means that you're going to be more responsible in you know, how you spend your time, how you, um, you know, relate to others, and so on, which, which I think uh, you know, I can say pretty fairly that I've seen a lot of in the Bitcoin community, is that you, know, you, you come in and you, know, you, you come in for the gains and then you, you, you stay for sort of the personal growth that you experience. Um, you know, when you start questioning everything, that's, that's kind of how, how it is. Yeah, over there. What is something Bitcoin won't fix? <laughs> um, possible supernovas that might happen, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe earthquakes. Yeah, natural disasters. Yeah, possibly, possibly. I, 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 I leave open the possibility that Bitcoin might fix those too. But <laughs> those are the ones I have doubts about. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, I, and I, I see a lot of what you're saying is, is that like large companies are just kind of unnatural in the first place. If you think about it, small companies have a lot of advantages that large companies don't. Like you, it's usually under Dunbar's number, which means that you can know everybody. And for somebody that's running a smaller company like that, you tend to be more humane when you know everybody. And you tend to be a lot more cognizant of who's not performing and so on. Uh, whereas with a big company, that's not the case at all. It's, a, it's, it's very much a bureaucracy. You have no idea who's doing a good job, who's not doing a good job. So the, the structurally, it, it, I, I think you go towards more small companies and, and instead of these large companies that have maybe some of these technologies that might not be beneficial to everyone. And instead of like these massive black swan events that like sort of displace a lot of people, you have much smaller, um, Vol uh, you have more local volatility, but not, not these giant waves of, you know, um, cascading, uh, you know, vulnerabilities that happen all over the economy like we did in 2008. And, uh, and you know, that, that's a good thing. We, we want to be more anti-fragile as a society, and, and Bitcoin's the first step. Um, yeah? Uh, well, so a smooth transition would look like, uh, you know, central banks starting to use it uh, or to buy it as like a reserve currency. The central banks that do, their currencies start rising uh, against other currencies um, and then, you know, like sort of becoming a safe haven for sound money or something like that. And then more countries adopting that and getting off the gold standard and starting to sort of settle uh, uh, with each other using Bitcoin instead of um, <coughs> US dollar or something like that. Um, I mean, that's a relatively safe and peaceful way. Um, it's also possible that you have, you know, a, a government just straight up ban Bitcoin and, uh, and then all the Bitcoiners go somewhere else. And, 
you know, you, you have to kind of play uh, whack-a-mole as, you know, these other governments maybe uh, get pressured or something like that. It's hard to tell. Uh, but, yeah, there, there are bad scenarios. So, I mean, this, this is why you should be really good with your OPSEC, right? More reason to secure your Bitcoins well. Yeah. Yeah, speaking about corporations and central banks, where do you see Bitcoin's future in the short term and the long term if these certain corporations start rolling out their own digital currencies and central banks such as like the Libra Project and the Public Bank of China releasing their own digital currency? Yeah, I, I, I'm not worried about any of those, to be honest. Uh, they, well, uh, so the, their um, main concern is allowing sort of, it's again the Keynesian philosophy, it's about velocity of money, making sure that there's no friction um, when uh, people want to spend and it's all spend, 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 spend. Um, and you know, that's fine, but you know, the harder money is going to win, that's Gresham's law, and Bitcoin is the harder money. Uh, no matter what the central bank tells you, they always have the option of printing more money. And that means that people are going to go towards Bitcoin in the long run, in the long run. Short run, maybe, maybe it disrupts things, but long, long term, I don't think it affects anything. Thanks for listening to the BitBlockBoom podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share the BitBlockBoom podcast with your friends. Also, make sure and take a look at this year's lineup of speakers that are at bitblockboom.com. And if you use the code COUSINS when purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price of a general admission ticket. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas next year at the next BitBlockBoom. Thanks for listening. BitBlockBoom!